Reading from Ephesians chapter 5, 21 through 33. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. God's word for God's people. Well, let's, uh, let's start by praying, and then we'll get into our text. Father, we thank you, um, God, for this morning. We thank you for a beautiful day. We're grateful for all the people that have gathered here. Um, God, would you be with us? Would you help us now? Would you give us uh, sharp minds and soft hearts as we come to this text? Would anything uh, that is in ourselves um, that bristles at this text or that doesn't like this text or um, that doesn't want to listen or obey this text, God, would you just kill that in us? Uh, Would your spirit speak very clearly and would you work in us this morning? I'm praying in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm excited uh, for this morning because we are kicking off a, uh, a two-week series, all right? So it's going to be a mini-series that we're doing on God's design or God's purpose for families. Uh, so just a little backstory quickly. When we were headed into uh, this September, we basically had three weeks where we just kind of left open and we just said, hey, we want to wait and see uh, what we felt like was most timely or helpful for our church. So if you were here last week, well not here, but at the Alumni Center, you know that we talked about unity. And that was we were able to just kind of name some things and say, hey, this is what we want to strive for as a church family. This week and next week, we're going to transition to do a two-week series on God's design or God's purpose for families. So this week, we'll hit marriages, and next week, parenting. Now, let me give you a couple reasons. There's a lot of reasons why we want to do that. Let me give you a few. Uh, Number one, uh, you might know, but just if you look at the life stage of our church, Many, the majority of people in our church are young married couples or young parents or soon to be one of those things. So when we looked at what's just helpful for our stage of life as a church, we thought, hey, these two weeks will be really helpful. Um, With that, though, we also recognized that as a church, many people in our church did not grow up with really gospel-centered, biblically-based families. 
So for many of us, as we are trying to figure out marriages and parenting, for a lot of us, it's trying to figure it out on our own, trying to figure it out for the very first time. And so pastorally, we thought, man, this would be really helpful just to give kind of a north star. We can't solve everything in two sermons, but we can give a little bit of a direction and just kind of say, hey, this is the design. This is what we are going for. All right, now third, the last thing I'll give you is that if you think about just culturally right now or in our world, there is an attack on the biblical definition of family. And I don't even know if attack's the right word. It's maybe more just like a rejection of that. So how the Bible speaks of family, marriages, gender, parenting, all those things, culture at large just kind of rejects those things. So we have to be honest with ourselves and say, if we as a people are consistently in the world and we're consuming, being formed by the messages of the world, then what that's going to do is that's going to actually form our minds and how we view gender, marriage, uh, family, and parenting. Thank you. That's better. Now I can make it the whole 40 minutes. All right, so... Um, so uh, with that, basically what we, what we said is if, if culture is constantly feeding us those messages, so they're feeding us the messages of uh, what they say marriage and gender and family are, then we as the church also need, if we want to form ourselves in what the Bible says, we need to take some time to actually just do a little bit of reformation work. And that, again, is what we're going to try to do this morning. So for those reasons and for many more, um, our hope is that this series will be helpful for us just to give a little bit of uh, design or purpose for family. So if you got a Bible, uh, Ken just read it's in Ephesians chapter 5. So as you can see, we don't have a screen or anything. So I want you to get a Bible out. So get your Bible, your phone, whatever you've got, Ephesians chapter 5. This is great. I got three mics on right now, and I think one is working, so this seems a little overkill, but uh, Ephesians 5. All right, as we get into the passage, um, we're going to basically spend a majority of our time looking at uh, wives, what is God's call and design for you in marriage, and then husbands, what is God's call and design for you in marriage. But before we get there, before we get to like the practical how this works out, um, I think we need just kind of a, a baseline foundation for what marriage is, right? We just need a kind of foundational statement that we can build on. And what's helpful is that actually in our text, I think we get a great little picture of that uh, in verse 31. All right, so if you're looking at your Bible, 31, this is actually a quote from Genesis 2, so the first time the Bible talks about marriage in Genesis 2, this is what it says. Jesus actually uses this same quote in the gospel, specifically in Matthew 19, to reaffirm a view of marriage. And then Paul uses the same quote here to also talk about marriage. So when we think, what's the simplest way to kind of define marriage? I would say this is a pretty good start because we got Old Testament, Gospels, and Epistles. This is what they go to. So let's read verse 31. This is kind of our baseline about marriage. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Okay, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I want you to notice what God says about marriage here. Baseline is one man, one woman, becoming one. All right, if you think, what is biblical marriage? It's one man, 
one woman becoming one. So here's what that means for us today. That means marriage is not one man with multiple women or one woman with multiple men. It is not two men or two women. Marriage is not between a human and any other creature in God's creation. Uh, Marriage is not two people joining together but essentially living separate lives. Marriage is not just receiving some economic benefits. And marriage is not a relationship for a little while. Marriage is one man and one woman who are becoming one for the rest of their lives. This means that biblically, we as Christians need to stand against or oppose any view of marriage that would negate that. That would say anything else is defining marriage, we would have to oppose that because over and over and over again, the Bible says one man, one woman becoming one. Now, with that as our baseline foundation, now there's a lot of nuances to that, and there's a lot of more things you can say, but if that's our baseline, one man, one woman becoming one for the rest of their lives, then let's look at Ephesians 5, and Paul is going to specifically say how that baseline foundation actually plays out. What's the design for marriage? All right, and so the outline of this is basically Paul says, wives, here's what you're to do. Men, husbands, here's what you're to do. And here's kind of the meaning of what all this is about. And if that's good enough for Paul, that's good enough for my outline. So we'll just follow exactly what Paul does here in Ephesians 5. So let's look. He's going to start talking to the wives first. Let's read verses 22 through 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. All right, so we can start, um, because we can just be honest here, we can start by naming the obvious, right? In our context today, Paul coming out of the gate saying, hey, I want to talk about marriage, and his very first thing being, wives, submit, I recognize can seem more demeaning or oppressive than life-giving, Right? Like I, I can recognize that, and that's just a reality. And I want to say, if that's you today, if you hear that right away, and you kind of cringe at that, or you kind of bristle at that, and maybe specifically if you do that because you've been in church context before, where a passage like this has been uh, misused or abused, um, I just want to say I, I totally get that impulse, I don't understand that feeling, but I get the impulse to kind of bristle at this passage. You know, a pastor I read this week, Kent Hughes, he said, God's holy word in the hands of a religious fool can do immense harm. He's saying the good word of God in the hands of a religious fool can really hurt people. And I just want to acknowledge today that maybe some of you have had this passage misused and we've had religious fools basically do harm to marriages, to families, and specifically to women from this passage. And so I just want to say we can be honest and just say this might be a little bit challenging. But here's what I want to do today. I want to kind of gently push back on that a little bit or nudge you away from seeing this as uh, oppressive or demeaning, and to see this as actually joy-filled and life-giving. All right, now I know that can seem hard, but here's what I want to say. 
If we believe that God is good, that everything he does is good, and that God is for your joy. Like, I believe that. Everything God does is good, and it's for your joy. And I hope you believe that, too, that what God does is for your joy. That means that whatever he commands is actually really good, and it is actually for your joy. So, wives, hear me. Ephesians 5 is about your joy. Like, we need to get that frame of mind that Ephesians 5 is actually about your joy. It's for your flourishing. So, I think in order to get that, if, if, you, if you have a view that's maybe a little bit challenging, uh, or when you hear that, I want to give you two statements, two things on submission. Maybe this is kind of a, a redefinition for us, okay? So when we think of biblical submission, I want to give you two statements about what it is and what it's not, all right? So when we think of submission, two things we can find in Ephesians 5. So I'm not even just making this up. This is Ephesians 5, all right? First one. Submission is a Christian virtue, not a feminine virtue. Okay? So we got to get everybody. Men, you got to get this too. Submission is a Christian virtue, not a feminine virtue. Okay, look at verse 21. So one verse above where he just started talking about marriages He's talking to the church as a whole, men and women, and he calls the church to be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul is saying that the life of a Christian is a life of submission. Now, what does it mean to submit to one another? I think the simplest way to look at it is to submit to one another is essentially to place one, someone else's needs above your own, to prioritize someone else before you prioritize yourself, to care for someone else before you care for yourself, to put their good ahead of your own desires. Or if you just think biblical language, what he's saying is out of a reverence for Christ, love your neighbor as yourself. Right? This is the idea of submitting to one another, and this is the life of a Christian. Right? If you, you look at different places in the Bible, the book of 1 Peter, a number of times Peter will tell the church to submit or to be subject to different rulers, different authorities, to God, to the providence of God, to all these different things. Uh, the book of Hebrews says that we as the whole church need to submit to our leaders and those who God has put in place of leadership. 1 John says that we as Christians should lay our lives down for the good of somebody else. And really, the whole Bible is a story about how we submit under the kingdom of God and his rule and reign. Therefore, the life of the Christian is a life of submission. This is just what we do. We submit under the Lord, and we submit our desires, our money, our time, our will, everything to the Lord and to the good of somebody else. Submission is a Christian virtue, not just a feminine virtue. Okay, second. Submission is about a part to play, not an inferior identity. Okay, so submission, specifically now when we're talking about marriage, it's about a part to play, not an inferior identity. So often, I think the abuse of this passage, when it gets misused, 
is when it comes when people will teach that women, wives, you should submit simply because you don't have what it takes to lead. Or simply because of your female identity, that means you cannot lead and you have to submit. And I need to say from Ephesians 5, that is a lie. That is not what Paul is saying. He's not saying that just your identity is less than so you cannot take responsibility or leadership. What he's saying here is that submission is about a part to play. And I get that from verse 24. All right, so, so what's going on here is that, is that God is saying marriage is like this movie or this play. And God has cast husbands and wives to play certain roles. They have parts to play to display this gospel drama. Okay, look at verse 24. This is what it says. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so that's the purpose, that's the meaning of what's going on, that's the gospel, that's like the gospel relationship, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So hear me, when, when Paul, or when God through Paul says, wives submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ, he's not saying your identity is inferior, so you need to just passively sit by. He's saying, look, I've designed marriage in such a way that it is going to be one of the clearest pictures to the world of the union of Christ and his church. I want something tangible to show the world the beauty of Christ and the church. So he creates marriage and he says, I'm going to give each of the two partners in marriage leading roles. Husbands, you're going to be like Christ. Wives, you're going to be like the church. And together when you play these roles, you actually get to present the gospel and show this to the world around us. So submission is not because women are inferior it's simply because that's the, the role that you have been cast to play. So wives, I just want to encourage us to, and really everybody, I guess, church, we need to kind of redefine our view of submission. All right, Submission is not just passivity or apathy. Submission is not about your identity. Submission is submitting first because you're a Christian to the rule and reign of God and to others, and in marriage, it's simply about playing your role. And anytime we do this, we live out the commands of God, I think we actually get much joy. You know, I was uh, in a small group or city group uh, years ago with a lady who was, uh, I think she was in her like 60s at the time. And uh, we were talking, I was a fairly new Christian, maybe a year or two I'd been a Christian, and I remember vividly her saying, she said, you know, life is full of these little decisions where you have to decide, am I going to follow what God says or am I going to do what I want to do? Right? We all know that. I mean, literally every day is, am I going to follow what God says or am I going to do what I want to do? And she said, in my 50 years of following Jesus, I have never once chosen to follow what Jesus said and then regretted it. She said, every time I've chosen to follow what Jesus said, I have received joy and flourishing in that. And so wives, I want to encourage you that that's what this passage is about. It's actually about your joy. He's saying this is how God has designed marriage, and this is how the healthiest marriages can function. And I guarantee you, if you actually commit yourself to living some of these things out, you will never live to regret it. All right, now, with that being said, 
I do want to get fairly practical on both wives and husbands. So if we can kind of redefine our view of submission a little bit, that it's, it's um, a part to play, it's a Christian virtue that we all live out, but wives in marriages, this is your call. Uh, I just want to speak very kind of pastorally and give a couple exhortations um, to the women in the room. All right, so first, let me start uh, with uh, ladies that are single, okay? So if you're not married yet, um, I think today you can feel a bit of a cross pressure. And here's what I mean by that. In the church, I recognize that it can often come across uh, as if there's this like pressure, you gotta get married. You gotta get married, you gotta get married. You get out of college, you're a young adult, you gotta get married, you gotta find somebody and you gotta get married. And I know that that can put this pressure on a feeling like, okay, I just, I've gotta find somebody and get married. But simultaneously, I also know that today in culture, there's this cross pressure that's saying, don't get married, right? Like live it up, don't get married, don't kind of like strap yourself down, get your experiences, do the things you want to do. And so you kind of face this pressure of you gotta get married and don't get married. So here's my, I wanna kind of like get in between and say here's what I think the Bible would say to that. First, if you're on the side where you just kind of live under the pressure of I gotta get married, I gotta get married, um, I wanna encourage you pastorally, do not rush into marriage, Okay, so what that means is um, this is going to be one of the biggest decisions of your life. And if Ephesians 5 is true, you getting married is signing up to have this man be the leader and head of your household. So don't marry an idiot, essentially, is what I'm saying. Like, just that that's a huge deal. And I can say that jokingly, but that's very serious. You wait until you have a guy who is passionately following the Lord and is leading. Now, let me also say, if, if you're younger, you know, in your 20s, every guy in his 20 is a little bit of an idiot. All right, so you're not going to find the perfect guy, but you should be able to find a guy who actually is pursuing the Lord, who wants to walk with the Lord, and wants to care and pursue you. So that practically means don't waste your time dating guys that are kind of losers and that are not following the Lord. Like, just very practically, like, don't do it. It's not helpful for you. It's not helpful for the godly guys who you actually want to be attracted to you. It's just a bad situation, and it will be damaging. I know today it might feel like it's okay. You might have somebody, and you might have that relationship. It is going to be damaging to your soul for the rest of your life. So seriously, don't rush. Wait for the right guy who's pursuing the Lord and who will pursue you. Now, on the flip side of that, if you're somebody who's uh, struggling, maybe on the other side, who would say, I don't want to get married, I'm not looking to get married, anything like that, I do want to ask you today to just examine your motives in that. Because marriage is a beautiful thing. Marriage is an eternally prosperous thing. It is a picture of the God. It's this amazing relationship. And so if you're on this side, I want to encourage you back to the middle a little bit by saying, look, if there is a guy who is godly, who wants to pursue you and lead you, don't push it off. Like, actually get married. This is a good thing. And we can say, well, I'm not ready yet. I haven't done enough yet. You'll never be ready, and you'll never do enough. So just get married, okay? So that is a good thing. Having families, God's design is for families to function in this way. This is a really good thing. And so we, we got to just examine our motives on why is it that I'm being really hesitant to move forward. And if it's primarily because of what culture is telling us to, to do and to experience, I want to encourage you to maybe put some of that down and to find a guy if he's pursuing you and is a good godly guy. Again, not a perfect guy, but a good godly guy to look to get married.
All right, married women, three things quickly. Number one, can I encourage you to passionately pursue all that God has given you to use that in your marriage? Here's what I mean by that. When we hear submission, I think we can often think, okay, that means I just need to kind of passively or apathetically sit by. Like my husband's the one who leads, he's the head, he does everything, I just am kind of here. That is not the biblical call. God has given you giftings and wirings, and he has built you in a certain way for the good of your marriage. So I want to encourage you, use everything that God has given you, and use that for the good of your marriage. Like every skill, every talent, every spiritual gift, every wiring and personality trait, use that for the good of your marriage. Actually see yourself not just um, as somebody for the kids or somebody at work, but you actually have a huge role to play in your marriage. Use everything that God has given you for the good of your family and your marriage. A second, would you encourage your husband? Encourage your husband. I'll say this as a, from personal experience, as a husband, I just need to, I'm begging you, encourage your husband like obnoxiously often. Okay, and here's why I say that. Because no man is going to respond and lead well through the avenues of guilt and shame. That's just not how it, that's just not how it works. People don't change long-lasting and healthy ways that way. What men will respond to is if you are consistently encouraging them. And I know for some guys, maybe you need to search a little deeper to figure out what to encourage them in, but there's something that you can encourage your husband in, and I need you to do that. Because here's the thing, when you start encouraging your husband, I guarantee you, he'll stand up a little straighter, he'll have a little more confidence, he'll lead a little bit more, he'll make some more decisions, he will lead out in the way that he's supposed to when he feels like you are right behind him encouraging him and loving him. So again, obnoxiously often encourage your husband, spur him on, challenge him to run to Christ and to lead your family. Show him that you trust him to make some hard decisions and to lead well in your family. You do that, and I guarantee you, it may not change overnight, but over time, he will begin to lead better just through your consistent encouragement. All right, number three, lastly, can I encourage you to pray for your husband? As we get into, as the, as the husband is the head of the family, that is a very weighty responsibility. For men, my hope after today is they feel that weighty responsibility. Wives, would you be praying for them? Pray for their soul. And here's the reality. Pray for their soul for the good of their soul. But as their soul is healthy, that's actually for your good too because they're gonna lead better. So pray for their soul and pray for your own health by praying for them. Pray that they would lead well, that they would take this responsibility well and that the Lord would speak to him, guide him, protect him, and lead him because as the Lord does that for him, he will then do that more for you. So use all your giftings, encourage him, and pray for him. All right, that's wives. Husbands, let's go to verse 25. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, before we go on, let me just stop for a moment. Uh, when I was reading this and talking to a couple guys, I don't know if you ever had like uh, group projects in school where you had maybe a big group and people were like handing out certain assignments on what to do and you kind of thought in your mind like, I really hope I don't get this one and then you don't get it, it goes to somebody else, you're kind of like, whew, okay. And then you get yours and you're like, 
oh, that's maybe worse. Okay, I don't know if you ever had that experience, but it's like, I think when, when guys read this, it's kind of like, oh, good, I don't have to submit. That's kind of nice. And then here's your call, guys. Love your wife like Christ loved the church. When we think about the gospel drama, your responsibility is to model Christ. This is the call for husbands. Now, um, let me explain and maybe redefine again a little bit of what this idea of headship means. So when he says we're the, the, the head in the last passage, or when he says we live like Christ, uh, again, I think for some guys, when we hear headship, we immediately think, okay, headship must mean um, either activity, so if, if submission means passivity, then headship means activity or leadership. So I do everything and I make all the decisions. Okay, again, I want to say that's not exactly right. So here's when you think of headship, here's what I want you to think of. When, when the Bible says you're the head of your family, here's what it means. Headship is not about activity. Headship is about responsibility. Okay, about responsibility. Men, the responsibility for the well-being of your family is ultimately on you. Okay, that's the call for you. Because again, if we're looking to Christ, Christ took spiritual responsibility for his bride, for the church, so much so that he actually came and laid down his life for the flourishing and goodness of his bride. And Paul says, that is what we are to do. Our headship is not about making every decision. It's just about the ultimate responsibility will fall on you. We see this even in the Garden of Eden, right? When, when Eve takes the fruit, God comes. Who does he go to? Adam. He says, Adam, what happened here? Because Adam had the ultimate responsibility for the flourishing of his family. And so too for us, men, we have the ultimate responsibility for the well-being of of our family. So we should ask ourselves, if that's true of headship, then what was Christ's headship like? Right, if we're supposed to model Christ, what was his headship like? So let's look at this, verses 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Everything in the life of Jesus was for the glory of his Father and the good of his church. Everything, everything Christ did had an aim towards honoring God and loving his bride. And husbands, that's your playbook. When you think of headship, you don't think, okay, I get to make the decisions and I get to kind of domineer. You think everything is under my responsibility to be for the good of the glory of God and the good of my wife. That's our playbook. That's what we are called to do as husbands. Now, what's interesting, because I can say that, but we need, I mean, everyone, we need some like motivation or this model that Paul gives us. And I remember, uh, again, when I became a Christian about 10 years ago or so, I felt like everything I read or any sermon I listened to on masculinity or uh, husbands, uh, everything almost was men just yelling at men, like belittling guys. And basically the message was, hey, you need to man up, Toughen up, straighten up, and figure it out, 
right? And I literally would listen to sermons, like hour-long sermons of just belittling guys, saying, you got to figure this out. Now, I will say, I do think there's a place for that. I think sometimes guys need to be looked in the eye and told, you need to grow up and figure this out, okay? But I don't think that's what Paul is doing here. Paul doesn't say, husbands, you have to play the role of Christ, and you idiots, figure this thing out. Like, you're just missing it. He doesn't say that. He says, husbands, play the role of Christ, and then he gives this beautiful picture of what Christ is actually like. He says, Christ is our playbook. And what does Christ do? He loves the church. He gave himself up for his church. He sanctified his church. He cleansed his church. He washed the church with the power of the word. He presents the church holy and blameless with no spots or stains. Paul roots his masculine motivation in the sacrificial, purifying love of Jesus Christ. So men, today, here's what I want to say. Before we get to the practical explications on being a husband, can I just say, for us as men, can our biblical definition of masculinity be Christ? I know that it is hard. We hear, it is so confusing to figure out what does a godly man look like? What does a man look like? What is manhood, right? I said it before. In culture, we're all sorts of confused on what is masculinity actually about. The Bible's very clear. It's about Christ. Our model is Christ. He is the one who we model after. So if we are going to grow, here's my simple call for us just as men. If we are going to grow in biblical masculinity, we have to commit ourselves to looking to Christ, abiding in Christ. Men, you have to know Christ. And I don't mean you have to know theological ideas about Christ. I mean you have to like gut level, you have to know him like you know a friend. You have to actually know who this man is because in that we can actually grow as men. So I want to encourage you, would you commit today that if you want to grow as a godly biblical man, that you would commit to actually knowing Christ. You would commit to knowing him, abiding with him, praying to him, reading the scriptures about him, looking to him consistently. Our masculinity as a group of men here at the church will be tied to our affection for Jesus. We as men, we cannot say that that's not a masculine thing to have affection for Jesus. We can't be too cool to have affection for Jesus. Our masculinity will be tied to how deeply we love Jesus Christ. Now, with that being said, let's wrap this up. Let's go some application for men, okay? So if that's kind of the idea of headship and what we need to do broadly, what does this look like? So first, for the single guys, again, two things. Number one, if you're single, would you kill sexual sin today? Kill sexual sin today. I know that it is easy to buy into the lie that right now, because you're not married, you don't have a wife, that it is basically not doing any harm to your future. And I'm telling you, that sexual sin today will leave scars for your marriage to come, and it will not just automatically die the day you get married. You have to actually go to war on your sexual sin. And so I want to encourage us as a group of men, would we actually kill sexual sin today? Like take it seriously. Don't buy into the lie that you'll figure that out later. Or once you have a girl you're interested in, then that'll be motivated. It's not. You need to kill sexual sin today. So can we just be honest enough? I, I want to encourage you, 
today, if you're in a city group, if you're in a huddle, would you confess that to somebody and just say, this, this is a big part of my life and I actually need to find freedom and deliverance in this? If you don't have a city group or a huddle, come talk to one of us as pastors, but we have to kill sexual sin today if we're going to be godly husbands in the future. Secondly, to single guys, until you have a, a wife and a family to lead, I want to encourage you to lead in the church, okay? So take, if, if headship is about taking responsibility, I want to encourage you, take responsibility today. Like, don't just wait and think I'll be a great leader one day, but actually take responsibility for your own spiritual soul, right, your own well-being, and then take responsibility for others. And that could be serving in the church that could be leading a city group, leading a, a huddle, whatever it might be, evangelizing and, and caring for somebody outside of yourself, but take responsibility for somebody today. And I need to say on this point, I actually think a lot of our single guys are doing this really, really well, right? Like we have a ton of guys who are leading city groups, leading huddles, serving, leading serving teams. I mean, I love seeing single guys using their time, not just for their own hobbies and interests, but for the good of the church. And so if that's you, uh, thank you. I mean, honestly, that is a huge deal. And women, those should be the guys that you look at, all right? So if you see a guy leading in that, because guys who are taking responsibility today are gonna have an easier path to learn how to take responsibility once you get married. So men, would you take responsibility for somebody outside of yourself in whatever form that might look like? Again, Jared just said it, get involved in life of the church, serve, do something to take responsibility and to give your life away because that's gonna be the call once you get married. All right, three things for married guys. Number one, same thing as I told the single guys. Married guys, we have got to kill sexual sin. I will say this over and over and over again. You've, we've got to kill it. It is doing damage that you probably don't even fully see in your heart and in your marriage. If we are to lead well and take responsibility well, we've got to kill sin. We have got to commit ourselves to looking to Christ and to quit looking at that computer screen. Like we just have to. Now here's what I want to encourage you in. If that's you today, and you feel like, man, you've just been addicted and you've struggled to this for so long, I want to encourage you. I want you to kind of metaphorically, I want you to take that sin right now. And I want you to take that right to the heart of Christ. Because I know when you're in the midst of shame and addiction, it can feel like Christ is angry at me, like Christ is filled with disappointment to me. And I want to tell you today that Christ has mercy and grace for you. He wants you not to hide that sin. He doesn't want you to say, no more, I'm not, I'm not going to try to do it anymore. He wants you to actually take that right to his heart, and he wants to actually heal you from that. And same thing I said before, to actually heal, James says, to heal from our sins, we have to confess our sins to one another. So I want to encourage you, if you are struggling with some sort of sexual sin or an addiction or something, would you actually confess that to somebody today? Go to maybe somebody in your city group, some guy in your huddle. Again, come to one of us as pastors and just say, hey, this, I'm really struggling with this. Because here's the reality. We desire not only just forgiveness of sin for that, we desire healing for that in you. And you've got to believe, I know that most men don't believe this, you actually have in the gospel the power to defeat that sin. You do. If you're a Christian, you have the spirit of God to defeat that sin in your life. And we want to help you do that. 
Okay, so we need to love and lead our families well enough to take this sin seriously and to kill it. And honestly, I think our victory in this sin will be directly tied to how we view our Savior. Do you think that he's angry and filled with just guilt that he wants to lay on you? Or do you see his heart as one who wants to draw you in so he can heal you and forgive you and give you the power to defeat this? And we can do this together. All right, man? So that's the first one. Second one, I've already kind of said this, but here's my direct call. Take responsibility of your home. Take responsibility of your home. If I were to ask you a question like, hey, how's your wife doing spiritually? Or how are your kids, if they're a little bit older, how are your kids doing spiritually? That is not solely on them, but that is ultimately on you. It is your responsibility that your family is flourishing. Now, I know, each individual has their relationship with God, but in God's design for marriage, he has placed the responsibility on the husband. So here's some questions I just want you to wrestle with this morning. Is your family in church every Sunday? That's your responsibility, men. Are you getting your family to church to hear the word of God, for your kids to go and be taught and to be discipled? Are you and your wife sitting here together, taking communion, singing, praying, hearing the word of God? Is that happening every Sunday? Is your family connected to the life of the church? Are you serving? Are you giving? Are you in a city group? Are you actually connected to people? Over and over and over again, the Bible says the way that we endure and will make it to the end is by the community of faith. We need each other. Husbands, that's your responsibility. Make sure your family is in the life of the church. Husbands, do your family's money point to you loving the kingdom of the world or the kingdom of God? If I were to look at your budget, now, I'm not saying that you have to run everything with your money. Some, some women are just better at that, and you should, for the good of your family, let your wives do that. But the oversight of that and your responsibility is that that money should be pointing towards we love the kingdom of God. We are primarily sold out for the kingdom of God. Does your family's priority and time spent reflect earthly value or eternal value? If we were just to do a time audit of your week, would it be obvious to say, man, these people, they have an eternal value. There are treasures in heaven. Or do we say, man, their treasure seems to be on earth. Men, that's your responsibility. There's many more questions we could go, but here's what I want to say. Men, take responsibility for your family. Actually help lead them towards Christ. Lastly, this is kind of a side with this. Third thing, would you wash your family in the word? Wash your family in the word. This is what Christ has done for us. And so I want to encourage you, would you actually have the word of God be a centerpiece of your family? And I think to do that, you need two things. One, you need to know the word of God. Right? Men, are you, are you committed to knowing the word of God? Because you can't actually lead your family in that if you don't know it. So are you committed daily to being in the word of God and to not just reading it to check it off so you feel good with God, but studying it, figuring it out, asking good questions so that you can then go and lead your family? Are you actually committed to the word of God? And, and the side note with that is, are you finding creative ways to wash your family in the word? Are you finding creative ways to ask your wife questions about the word of God, to see how she's doing spiritually, to ask her, if you're reading a text, I mean, what does this mean? How do you understand this? And this was really encouraging to me, just finding creative ways at dinner times, car rides, before you go to bed, whatever it is, to wash your family in the word. So this is Paul's call 
God's, God's design for husbands and wives. Now, I love the last few verses. Let me end with this. Look at verse 31 through 33. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one, fest, one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I love that phrase in 32. He says, this mystery is profound. He's saying this reality of marriage and how it correlates to the gospel is profound. This is a profound reality. But this is one of the clearest pictures the world has of the gospel. So church, can I encourage us? Would we gladly submit to our roles the parts that we've been cast to play? Men, would we take responsibility for our families and would we look to Christ, experience the grace and mercy of Christ and then lead our families out of that? Wives, would you gladly submit under leadership like that, right? Like, I know that this could maybe seem hard right away, but just imagine if your husband was communing with the Lord and leading out of a place of grace and mercy and tenderness and toughness, that's a joyful thing to get to submit to his leadership. Would you both use all of your giftings and what, how God has wired you for the good of the gospel drama going forward? And I think especially in our day today, if we would commit as a church to these types of marriages, this would be a bright light to the world around us. This could be one of our greatest witnesses to the world is marriages that reflect the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you have given us the gift of marriage. Um, God, you didn't have to design this in such a way. You didn't have to um, call us into such a life-giving, joy-filled roles to play, uh, but you did in your kindness. And so, God, we do pray. Um, I pray for both husbands and wives, for families today, um, that this could be kind of a starting point for us. Um, that we would look at the scriptures, we would see what we're called to do, and that we would find great joy in living that out. Even if it feels awkward or challenging right away, God, would we do this because we know that you are for our joy. You're for the gospel going forward, and this is how we can do that in marriage. So God, would you help us? Where we have sin or apathy or complacency or um, anything that helps us not want to obey these commands, God, would you help us to remove that? And would you give us uh, a spirit of obedience that we would love you to play our part and play our roles here? God, would you help the flourishing of our marriages? Um, would you help marriages present the gospel to the world around us? Would all of our kids growing up in these families um, get to see marriages that are running after you and portraying the gospel so we could set generational patterns? I know, like I said at the beginning, many of us um, are, are trying to figure this thing out for the first time. Would we be able to set patterns for generations of families behind us that could love you and love one another? God, would we do this all for your glory? and for the good of those around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above Bye.